Anyways, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 27, verse number 1. And uh, sometimes what it is is, you know, I find things interesting and other people maybe don't, (laughs) you know. It's just how we're built, maybe, I don't know. But uh, anyways, Exodus 27, verse number 1. And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pans, and all the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. And thou shalt make it uh, a grate of network of brass, and upon the net thou shalt make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even to the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass, and the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be, uh, put, be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it, and as it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. Now what is not exciting about that? Come on, be honest. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Amen. And so what we're looking at is the brazen altar. This altar is made out of, uh, of a certain wood that they found that's very durable in that area. It's also called acacia wood. And it was made, it's very durable wood. And then, of course, it's overlaid with brass. Brass is always a picture of judgment. The wood is a picture of Christ's humanity. And especially when it comes to the brazen altar, that's vital for us to understand. Because if Christ is going to give himself as a sacrifice for us, that's based upon his humanity, and then, of course, the judgment of sin upon him. And so that's what the, the uh, brazen altar represents to us. And so I'm going to look at number one, the person of the brazen altar. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 10, this is an interesting verse. It says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. So that's interesting because they that serve the tabernacle were the Levites that were actually serving within that particular tabernacle there but it's telling us in hebrews 13 that we have an altar that they don't have the right to eat at you understand and that's because we're we're it's two different things Uh, when you're looking at the old testament the lord's not looking for us to go back to the law and ceremonies and so forth that was simply a picture of things to come now that jesus christ has given his life on calvary's cross for us and opened up the way into glory Uh, That's a completely different altar that we have to serve on, amen, and to sacrifice upon. Uh, Way different than the Old Testament. And so it goes on to say, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. And Ben, if you could just please, something with the mic is just weird. It's, It's distracting me. You can just pull that frequency down, because I changed it for Brother Jake on Sunday. I think that's what it is. All right? (laughs) His voice is different than mine. And so our altar basically is Jesus Christ. Uh, Letter A, brass pictures the judgment of our sin upon Jesus Christ. And you see that in Hebrews 9.25. It says, Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And so we got to get this, uh, this typology right, that this brazen altar, when you're looking at it in the Old Testament, is a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us in taking our sin upon himself. Amen? So when you read all those verses that have to do with all those sacrifices, it's always pointing at an aspect of Christ's judgment. Letter B, two lambs would be offered in the morning and one in the evening every day, representing our need to start and end our day depending on Christ. Not just depending, but being consecrated too. And so these priests, what they would have to do every day, those coals would be burning, and they would take a lamb in the morning, and they'd offer that lamb and with the meat offering and with the drink offering as well. And then the evening, they would do the same thing, and they'd repeat that every day. Two lambs a day, no matter what. That was continual. And that pictures Christ to us. The beginning of the day and at the end of the day. Amen. Wouldn't it make a big difference in your life if you woke up with Christ on your mind, and then you went to bed with Christ on your mind, that doesn't always happen, does it? Because your day's so full of this, that, or the other, and you don't think about Christ the way we ought to. And so many times, it's good to kind of reset ourselves, especially in the morning, wake up, get ourselves to the Bible, get ourselves to thinking about the Lord, spend the day you know, meditating on Him, and in the evening, once again, get some time where you're thinking about the Lord somehow, that's the way that we continue service. That's the way we stay consistent in our Christian life. Amen? And so, um, so that consecration all day long, 2 Timothy 4, 6, it says, For I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Talking about Paul. And now the Apostle Paul was ready to die. He was ready. He was looking at himself as an offering. And he did that many times. In fact, Philippians 2, 17, it says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. So he's saying that I'm willing to be offered upon the sacrifice of your faith. That's a pretty powerful statement. How many of us would say, I'm willing to sacrifice myself for the sake of others and the building of their faith? Amen? Can you imagine if all of us would do that? <laughs> you know? And that's the type of attitude we're talking about when we're thinking about that continual offering of that lamb every morning, every night. Every morning, every night. That consecration to the things of the Lord. Letter C, New Testament believers offer spiritual offerings through the altar of Christ. And so, like I said, and, and I don't know what's echoing there, but it's really driving me nuts. Can anybody hear that or is that just me? You hear that too? What is that? <laughs> it's weird. Ben, fix it, please. <clears throat> fix it, Ben, right now. <laughs> Anyways, New Testament believers offer spiritual offerings. And so we're not, we're not going to offer lambs and oxen and things like that. We're not going to offer blood anymore. But I'll guarantee you this. You will be offering, you, you could be offering something every single day. Every single day. But it's upon a different altar than the one that they did in the, in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a new altar in glory. I'm not, I don't know exactly what it looks like up there as far as the temple is concerned and the heavenly uh, substance of what these things are just simply typifying. But all I know is this, that when you offer something, you're offering it through Christ to the Lord. So the Christ is always your altar. 
And not just for salvation. You think, well, I got saved already, so that's over for me. No, it's not. That was the first time you went to the Lord. But you know what? Every day you still go through that same offering. You're still, that's why he says to bear your cross. That's why he says for you that the, the preaching of the cross is power to them that believe. Amen? Because you're constantly giving offerings to the Lord through the cross of Calvary because he is the altar. And I'm going to give you a verse here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. It says, by him, therefore, so by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So you think about that. That is called a spiritual offering. And the Bible says that we're now New Testament priests giving up spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord. So how is it that just giving thanks is a spiritual sacrifice? Well, a sacrifice is always something that costs you something. A sacrifice is always something that's done by faith. Amen. So it's not just saying, oh, I'm just thankful, I'm thankful. What it is, is when there's times in your life that you know that are very difficult and it's hard for you to see any praise in it, that's when you praise them. That's when you praise them. When you're in a situation that everything seems like it's turned against you, and then you can say, thank you, Lord, that is a sacrifice. That's, that's offered upon the altar of Christ. Amen? So it's not just running around saying thank you for everything. You know? And I think we should when things are going good and when things are going bad. But you know, it's like when you have a child in the hospital treated for cancer. That's where the offering is made. Amen? When you lose someone that, that you love, that's when the offering is made. And so it's not always when it's all going well. And so that really puts us into check because we somehow think that we're supposed to be happy and joyous when things are going great, but then when things go opposite to what we want them to be, then somehow we don't necessarily need to be joyous. We don't need to give thanks. <laughs> Without realizing that is exactly the time where the Lord is listening to see if he can hear you say thank you in the midst of that. That's the offering. That's the altar. Amen. So Christ is that altar. Uh, letter D, New Testament believers must choose to identify with Christ's reproach. And Exodus 29, 14, and I, I just mentioned this because there's a tie in the New Testament here to this uh, passage here. It says, but the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung thou shalt burn with fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. So the sin offering they would take out of camp and they would burn it completely. A complete judgment. And so if you go to Hebrews chapter 13 where we were just looking before, it says, let us go, there, go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So there you have the context. The context of that spiritual sacrifice is while you're bearing the reproach of Christ outside the camp. Amen? Now, why is he saying this in the book of Hebrews? Because what you would have is Hebrew believers that came out of the Jewish system, and you know what it's like when you're around people that you've grown up your whole life with, and now you've made a decision to go in a different direction, and yet they're still around you. 
it's hard to take that stand or be in a situation where you would say, I'm willing to have them persecute me or turn against me, whether it be family, friends, or whoever, relatives. That's hard to take. And so we try to appease it. And that's what the Hebrews were doing. The Hebrews were saying, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus, but what they weren't willing to do is bear his reproach. So Paul had to admonish them and say, hey, just like in the Old Testament, when they took the sacrifice out of the camp uh, and burned it without, because it was a shame. Remember even Miriam, when she, uh, when she had the leprosy, they put her outside the camp for seven days. So it's a shame to be put outside the camp, you see. But then these people, they, because of their willingness or non-willingness to suffer the reproach of Christ, they, they wouldn't allow themselves to be persecuted by those around them. They kept playing both sides. Oh, we're just going to say, you know, because we don't want to cause problems, whatever the excuse is. But the Bible says very clearly that we as believers should be willing to go with outside the camp and suffer the reproach of Christ just like he did for us. Amen? And he was around his people, yet he was persecuted, you know? And so you have to be very careful in the Christian life because, you know, uh, I grew up in a background, in a culture of peace at all costs. That, that basically is the tag phrase. Peace at all costs. And not, not glory to God at all costs, <laughs> you know? And so basically, if it's going to ruffle feathers, let's find a different way to do this, you know? And that's basically within the fabric of our people. Uh, we would compromise constantly because we didn't want to pay the price. And we'd move from country to country, you know, running from that type of reproach, you know? And, and so that is still following us. And it's amazing how, as, as a people, it ingrains within your thinking as it's been passed down from generation to generation. But, uh, you know, uh, one example is when they went to Russia, the, the uh, I don't know who the uh, leader was at that time, I they called them emperors, or I think that's what it was. They made a deal, we'll let you have your own schools, we won't, we won't uh, uh, require you to go to war for us, and that was a big one because they were pacifists, if you don't proselytize the people. And they agreed. <laughs> and so there you had this mentality of us four and no more, and that followed the Mennonites for a long, long time, where we never reached out into other groups. And that's very much even like a Hutterite is that type of mentality. You know, they're not terribly concerned about reaching you. <laughs> you know, they want to just maintain themselves within their ark. They call it the ark, you see. This is the ones that are saved. And so it's, uh, we got to be very careful of that, especially if your background has it in there. I was talking to a friend this last week about, and he grew up Mennonite just like I did. He had more of a, definitely more of a uh, old colony or a, uh, more, more of that old style type of religion than I had growing up. But uh, he said the same thing, that, uh, you know, he had to, it, when he got saved, after he got saved, he renounced the teaching that he had received his whole life. And I strongly encourage anybody that has come out of a system like that to actually go to the Lord and renounce 
that you're, you're tied to that particular teaching. Now, that's hard to do because you're saying, but yeah, but that's my aunt and uncle and my grandpa, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but you're not renouncing your grandma and grandpa. You're renouncing your tie to the errors, to the lies. And those lies, even though maybe you've walked away from it, just like with the Hebrew Christians here, they walked away from it, but it was still holding them. And they weren't willing to pay the price because they weren't letting go what they should have let go. Amen. And I've done that in counseling before. I remember I had a young lady that grew up in the same thing, and she was just in bondage. And I sat her and I said, you need to renounce that. And in our counseling session, she in prayer renounced her connection to the teaching of that particular movement that she was in, the old colony movement. And I would do the same thing if I were you, no matter what your background is. I don't know what your particular religion was. Maybe you had a Catholic religion. Uh, it could be anything else. <coughs> Excuse me. Could I get a water, please, somebody, if you could bring that up here? I'm out. You know, um, <clears throat> I really encourage you, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, they ought to, we ought to renounce the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully. And so it takes a spiritual release from those type of teachings. And that's why many times when you're listening, even a sermon like in a church like this, and I'll bring up a passage of scripture. There are certain passages that I know if you're a Mennonite out there, I immediately know it just, it just hit a chord with you. Because that's verses that they used to use probably to teach an opposite doctrine. And I could still, still discern that as I'm preaching. Is that, oh yeah, that person probably just got tweaked. <laughs> you know, because they use that like uh, you know, purging the casting forth the branches into the fire. John 15, right away it's, oh, that's going to hell, <laughs> you know. I know when I say verses like that, it's, it's hitting people in a certain way, you know. And so the biggest thing is, is to make sure you renounce any tie to those type of things. Just like these folks, Paul was encouraging them, admonishing them, hey guys, you need to let go, you need to get outside the camp and bear the reproach of what you truly believe, amen. Stop trying to make that, that two-handed connection here. It doesn't work. <laughs> you got to choose a side. Amen? Anyways, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, 10, it says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now, there's a man that let go. Amen? He let go of everything because he tried to live his death, the death of Christ. Number two, we look at the position of the brazen altar Letter A, the brazen altar would be the first furniture scene expressing the need to deal with sin before approaching God. Now, this is on two levels here. First level is salvation. You're not getting close to God if you don't get saved. You're not getting close to God if your sin has not been dealt with at the cross of Calvary. But in the same way, we'll look at that when we get to the laver, there's an aspect of you're not getting close to God, Christian, unless you deal with your sins in your life because it breaks your fellowship. So you need to establish your relationship and then you maintain your fellowship. Amen? So the relationship is the salvation aspect of it. The fellowship is that everyday cleansing that you need in order to be close to the Lord. And so we can't confuse those two because that, that's used falsely many times as well. In Exodus 40, verse 6, it says, 
And thou shalt set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. So basically, there's the tent. Right at the door is the brazen altar. In other words, you're not getting past this. <laughs> you go here first. Uh, you cannot pass go. Amen. <laughs> You've got to deal with this. And so uh, the Bible tells us in Romans 6, uh, 22, it says, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. And so notice it says, And now being made free from sin. So that's the first step getting free from sin, now you can have your fruit unto holiness in the end everlasting life. Galatians 4.4, 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so we have to be redeemed before we can get any of the blessings uh, of, of the Christian life. Letter B the sin of the people would be imputed to the offering by confession of sin. And this is interesting because it really is no different than us today, except it's got all the typology there. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it talks about Christ, for he hath made him, <clears throat> excuse me, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he became sin for us, uh, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Number one, <clears throat> no, you don't have number, number one, do you? But I've got three different groups here. Within this passage and within the Levitical law, the high priest would lay his hands upon the offering and confess the sins of Israel before entering the tabernacle. So when they put their hands upon that offering, what that is is they're confessing sins, that they're, they're imputing it, to that offering. That's the picture involved there. The next group we see in Leviticus or in Numbers chapter 8, it talks about the Levites. So the Levites would lay their hands upon the head of the bullocks to be offered before they could serve the Lord. I'll read this to you. In Numbers 8 verse 12, it says, And the Levites shall lay their hands upon the heads of the bullocks, and thou shalt offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for the Levites. And thou shalt set the Levites before Aaron and before his sons and offer them for an offering unto the Lord. Thus shalt thou separate the Levites from among the children of Israel and the Levites shall be mine. And after that shall the Levites go in to do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation and thou shalt cleanse them and offer them for an offering. So notice, before the Levites could serve, they had to confess. They had to confess sin. I cannot stress that uh, strong enough for us as God's people. The Levites were that group that were pulled out even from the regular people that would be used to serve God in the tabernacle. And you could, re you could really relegate it to you right here. <laughs> You're the Levites, you know. So basically the Lord says, before you serve, you make sure you confess your sins. You make sure you deal with the sins of your life, you know. And they notice that they used the bullock. And the bullock was what they used for serving. It was, it, was a, it was a beast of burden. Amen. It would pull the plows. It would do whatever. And so the Lord is telling them, you cannot serve me properly until you first deal with your sin. Now, salvation, of course, definitely. That's where the lamb is offered. But now he's saying the bullock. 
So basically, you want to serve God, make sure you keep your life clean. Confess to the Lord. Amen. At your altar, at Christ. All right? And the third group, of course, the Hebrew himself, any Hebrew sinner <laughs> could come before the Lord. Leviticus 1.4, And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So people throughout the day, a man would come in with his, with his offering, present it as a burnt offering, lay his hand upon the head of that offering, confess, and it would be burnt. Picturing how Jesus Christ deals with our sin. Not just that salvation, but every day. Amen? They would come in every day, you know. Some of them maybe a couple of times a day. I don't know. I don't know how they did it back then. But let her see, the coals of the altar would burn continually, making it possible to offer sacrifices any time. So it was, it was made a law. In fact, in Leviticus 6, verse 8, it says, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night unto the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh, and take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed with the burnt offering on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. And he shall put off his garments and put on other garments, and carry forth the ashes without the camp, unto a clean place. And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it. And he shall burn thereof the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. I don't know how they did it. But whatever they did, wherever they brought that altar, there was a fire burning in that altar. That's a picture of how we have easy access to forgiveness, easy access to atonement at any time we can come before the Lord. You don't have to wait till the morning. <laughs> you don't have to wait till tonight. Uh, you don't have to wait till the priest is in the confessional. <laughs> Amen. You can actually go and right here, right now, the Lord brings something to your mind. You can go to that altar and lay your hand on that offering. Say, Lord, forgive me. And it's burnt. It's done. Amen. That's a wonderful truth that we have. So we have an altar that is, is much more effective than the altar they had. Amen. Because we have access 24-7 every minute of the day. And it's not dependent whether someone remembered to light the fire or not. Amen. Because that fire is burning forever. And we know that in 1 John 2, 1. It says, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's no time barrier on there. There's no certain moment you can access that. It just basically says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Immediately. Amen. What a wonderful truth that is. Number three, the power of the brazen altar. Exodus 30 verse 2. And a cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four square shall it be, and the two cubits shall be the height thereof, and the horns thereof shall be of the same. All right? So those horns, and that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of this uh, message, letter A. The horns of the altar represent the power of forgiveness for reconciliation. So those horns, that's power. So this brazen altar had power that brought forgiveness. 
So our altar has power for forgiveness. Uh, Psalm 118, verse 27, God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. So they would bring the, the, their live sacrifices in, their offerings, and they would tie it to the horns until they killed it and offered upon that altar. Because that was a picture of the power, the power of forgiveness that we have. Letter B, the power of forgiveness is only available through Jesus Christ shed blood. And you see in Exodus 29, verse 12, <clears throat> it says, And thou shalt take of the blood of the bullock, and put upon the horns of the altar with thy finger, and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. And so basically they would take some blood from that offering, and they would put it upon the horns of the altar. Why is that? Because you have no power of forgiveness without the blood of the offering. Amen? And that's the picture we have there. And we do have scripture to prove that. In Ephesians 1 verse 5 it says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted and beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. In Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So that blood had to be upon the, the horns of that altar. <clears throat> now letter C, the horns point in every direction, representing God's power to forgive to every corner of the earth. In Exodus 38 verse 2, and he made the horns thereof on the four corners of it. The horns thereof were of the same, and he overlaid it with brass. I found this passage in Psalm 67. It says, God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that thy way may be known upon the earth, thy saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon the earth, Selah. Let the people praise thee, O God, and let all people praise thee, then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Amen. So when God put those horns on that altar, he's saying, my goal is to hit every corner of this earth. Not just the Jews, you know. And unfortunately, that's what the mindset was. This is just for us, not the Gentile dogs, you know. They really didn't understand the heart of God. When he put this all together, maybe for the Israelites, it was based on the picture giving to us. God used the Israelites in that example, but that was not his end game. His end game was to, was to bring Christ in and to reach to every soul upon the planet. Amen. And that was Israel's purpose. And that's why they began to fail because they, they didn't catch that burden. And so the horns were the same in each direction. So it said the horns are the same. So there's no people group, no nation, anybody that is less, has less opportunity to be saved than the next. And we know that by that final song that we're going to sing before the Lord. It says, for thou art worthy, for thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. 
Everyone. So this whole thing about, oh no, that, that nation, they, they can't really get this. No, that horn is pointing towards them too. <laughs> Amen. Every nation. And we got to get out of this mentality sometimes. We think, oh, well, you know, let's reach our people or folks. Uh, I don't care what religion they have, whatever they think, whatever they've held for thousands of years. I really, it doesn't matter. That's not God's plan for their life. God wants them to turn to Christ. We need to give them the real message, the message that will save them and their families. Amen. That's what God wanted us to do. That's why the horns were pointing in every direction. Amen. There, there is no such thing as us just kind of letting a certain people go because, well, they have their own thing. They, they have Islam. Well, the horn was pointing to them too. Amen. And it's hard. You know, even last week we were praying for the Palestinians. And you know that there's all kinds of things going on in this world and people taking a side in a wrong way and a side in a wrong way that way. And, but the ultimate thing is God wants everybody to be saved. And when, when you come down to it, whether they're Israel or Palestinian, Right now, they, both those sides need to be saved. <laughs> the one is not more saved than the other. <laughs> Amen. When you think about it, the only thing that the Israelites got going for them is that God has an ultimate plan for their nation. But those individuals in Israel, they need that horn just like you and I. Same thing. That promise of a nation being used isn't going to save that soul. That's just an ultimate purpose to be fulfilled within Israel. <laughs> But the individual souls, they're not just saved because God chose them to be a chosen people. This dispensation, they got to come to Christ the same way you do. Same way you do. You know, everybody the same. The, the Islamic man, whoever it is, the Palestinian, if you were to get into Gaza and talk to them, you know what your message would be? That Jesus Christ died for their sins and they need to receive Christ as their Savior. Wow, you know, and we've seen that happen. We've had people come through that were Iranian, they were Islamic, and then they found Christ and they got saved. That just changed them, just totally uh, changed their lifestyle, their whole life, their heart, amen? Even called them to missions and now they're out there preaching and telling others about Christ. And so that's, that's very important for us to understand. Letter D, we'll be done after this one. The power of forgiveness is based upon Christ's atonement for sin and man's true repentance toward God. So there's the power to forgive is very effective. Any man can access that, but you got to approach it the right way. And we have a few examples I'm going to look at here. Uh, remember, I think I, we talked about it a, uh, a little while back about Adonijah and Joab taking hold of the horns of the altar. And I just want to bring that out once again. Number one, to receive forgiveness, there must be genuine repentance. So you can just say, oh Lord, forgive me for that, and have no desire truly to be free or to be, have that sin out of your life. You know you're going to do it again. You know you want it, you know. But just because I feel bad, I'm just going to say, please forgive me. Well, this is the example we have in 1 Kings 1 verse 50 uh, about Adonijah. Adonijah, of course, according to age, probably should have had the throne after David. But that wasn't God's will, and he knew that. He knew that Solomon was chosen to be the next king. But while David was weak and he couldn't do anything about it, and close to dying, Adonijah convinced 
the, the, the upper guys, the, the priests and so forth, that he was going to be king. So they had a big party and they named him the king and so forth. But what happened is the, the prophet got involved, Bathsheba got involved, and then they told David. And then David said, well, I'll tell you what, what you need to do is the priest needs to take Solomon on my horse with my cloak, with my ring, and you need to announce to all the people this is going to be your king. And that's exactly what they did. And when people started to see that, sitting at the party with Adonijah, they thought, oh my goodness, we are on the wrong side. <laughs> you know? So they all scurried like rats. And Adonijah, of course, was left there thinking that he was a king, but realizing it's all being taken away. And knowing that what he did was worthy of death. So what did he do? Well, it goes on to say, and Adonijah feared because of Solomon and arose and went and caught hold on the horns of the altar. That power of forgiveness, that safety, it was like a sanctuary. No, you're not going to kill me if I'm, if I'm truly repentant here, if I'm truly grabbing onto the horns. Well, and it was told Solomon saying, Behold, Adonijah feareth King Solomon, for lo, he hath caught hold on the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear unto me today that he will not slay his servant with the sword. And you know what? I should have had more of this passage. I need to go here. First Kings. Apologize. Thought I had it in there. Okay. And so... And then Solomon said in verse 52, And if he will show himself a worthy man, there shall not an hair of him fall to the earth, but if wickedness shall be found in him, he shall die. So basically, Adonijah is making a statement here. I'm repentant. I want forgiveness. I'm grabbing a hold of the power of forgiveness, that horn. So Solomon gave him the benefit of the doubt. He said, okay, if that's the case, Let's prove you. Now, we don't want to do that today. We want to prove people. <laughs> you know, the Bible is very much for proving, proving repentance. And I'm going to show that to you. But we know that with Adonijah, what took place, David had a concubine that stayed with him. I think her name was Shushag or something like that. I forget the exact name. But she was simply there when he was dying to keep his body warm because he was losing so much heat. And so after David died, Adonijah goes through Bathsheba and says, ask Solomon if I can have this concubine that was with the king. Of all the people he could want in his life, that's the one that he asked for. And Solomon, because he was wise, knew immediately because he wanted to somehow tie himself back into that power, into David and so forth. And so immediately Solomon knew, see, you're not truly repentant. A repentant person wouldn't have asked for that. And he killed him. So there was a testing. Amen. And so I'm going to show you a passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse number 10. It says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So there's two ways that you approach your sin. You could both, and you're crying on both of these ways, okay? Where we got tears coming down. 
One of them is crocodile, one of them is art. <laughs> you know? And so basically, it's saying that there's a, there's a godly sorrow that worketh repentance, a true change of mind in your life, a true change of heart about what you're doing. And then there's another uh, sorrow that is worldly in nature. And it has far more to do with the consequences and what I need to go through, what I've lost, what people think of me, da-da-da, all those type of things that are bringing the tears coming down. But it has nothing to do with what I did. You know? And so now it goes on to say, for behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. And the Apostle Paul is talking to a person that was in the first epistle that was living in sin and that he had rebuked. And now he's saying, this person that we had rebuked and dealt with, they are now sorrowing because of the sin that they've done. And so now he's explaining to the people, this is, this is how you determine whether this person is, is re- genuinely repentant or not. And so it goes on to say here, you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. So if this person that is now said, I have repented, I have asked forgiveness, I, I, I've confessed my sin, is constantly playing with the same sin, uh, not really trying to be careful about what he is doing in that regard, that's a sign that's not truly repent, repentance. It says, what carefulness it wrought in you. Then it goes on to say, yea, what clearing of yourselves. <laughs> so basically, real repentance isn't looking at other people and saying, well, you just need to trust me. They're all concerned about what other people think of them. That's not what a true repentant person does. A truly repentant person is way too busy clearing themselves than worrying about what you're thinking about them. Amen? Because a person that doesn't want to deal with their sin, they will just lay the guilt trip on you. You don't trust me. You don't love me. Da, da, da. Where you could just say, hold on here. Weren't you the one that sinned? Aren't you the one (laughs) that needs to get right here? Why are you coming at me? (laughs) You know, that's a sign there's not repentance in that person's life. Then it goes on to say, yea, what indignation. Indignation. So now this person is feeling this, this burning hatred for what he used to do. It's not coddling it and saying, oh, it wasn't so bad. And, oh, I remember when I could do this. That's not true repentance, you know. And it goes on to say, yea, what fear, what reverence, what vehement desire. So there's a desire in their heart to do right. There's a desire that you see on that person that they're willing. Now, I'm not saying this all happens overnight, I'm not saying that you go from being a wicked sinner to a Bible under your arm in two minutes here. But I'm saying, ultimately, this is the result of true repentance. Amen? Even though it may not just be overnight type of thing, because I don't think I've ever seen that overnight. Because <laughs> people have to get their brains working, <laughs> you know, in the right way. And then it goes on to say, what zeal? Zeal. So now you look at that person, there's a zeal in their life because of the sin that they were involved with, a zeal to do opposite of that. So let's say you were a thief. Now your zeal is, hey, I want to be generous and help others. <laughs> That's a sign of repentance. 
Then it goes on to say, yea, what revenge? Revenge. So a, a true repentant person takes revenge upon the sin that cost them so greatly. Not always defending it. Oh, it wasn't so bad. Right away, you need to say, you know what? You are not truly repentant. And if I were Solomon, you would die. Amen? If we were operating by that standard, you wouldn't live another day. But you know what? We go on and on in that false repentance, that worldly sorrow. We cry about all it cost us. We cry about, oh, how hard it is for us because of all the things that happened, because the things we did. Right? Instead of saying, you know what? I deserved it. <laughs> and now there's a zeal to prove myself to, the, to others. Then it goes on to say the final one. It says, in all things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wow. That, <laughs> you don't see that too often today when people get right. You're even scared to approach them about it because you're, oh, maybe they'll get mad at me or whatever. This person, in all things, approved himself to be clear of that sin. Wow. That, my friend, is the ultimate end of repentance. So when Solomon was looking at Adonijah, you know he was looking for? Is there a carefulness there? Is there a zeal there? Is there a fear and a vehement desire? Is there a revenge that he's feeling against that, that, that uprising, against authority and so forth? So when he saw that he was trying to undermine by getting that concubine of David, he knew that his repentance and his sorrow was just of the world. Wow. That's pretty powerful, you know. Another example, number two, receiving forgiveness of sins does not mean there will not be consequences for our sins. So just because you've been forgiven doesn't mean there's not a price to pay. You know, and so we had another example of a man that grabbed on the horns, you know, and unfortunately Solomon had to deal with him too. First Kings 2 verse 28 says, Then tidings came to Joab, for Joab had turned after Adonijah, so he was actually someone that followed this usurping of authority. Then it says, Though he turned not after Absalom, so he stood with David when Absalom rebelled against David, but now that David was old and Adonijah came on the scene, Joab went after Adonijah. Then it says, And Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord because he saw that what was going on, David was establishing Solomon as the king. He fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord and caught hold on the horns of the altar. <laughs> you know, I don't know about horns. I, I'm wondering about this. Is he grabbing more than one at one time? I don't know. I'd have, I was going to check the cubits of that to see how what kind of a span you'd have to have to grab both horns at the same time. But, or if he's just running around, just grabbing whatever horn he can. But anyways, and was told King Solomon that Joab was fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord, and behold, he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go fall upon him. That was his judgment. Now, why was this? Adonijah... He gave him a chance. Adonijah says, okay, let's see what, what comes out of this. 
Joab, he says, Joab, go kill him right where he stands. Interesting. Now, what is it about Joab that caused such problems? Well, Joab, though he seemed he was actually one of the mighty men of David, and he, ruled, he, he led the army with David as a general, but yet when it came to Absalom, who's the one that put the darts in Absalom's heart? What, did, what was the order of David? Not to kill Absalom. Remember he got his hair caught in the trees? And the one guy that saw him there, Joab says, why aren't you going to kill him? He says, well, because David, the king, told us not to. Joab went and just killed him right there. Now, David remembered that. <laughs> you know, he told that to Solomon. Not only that, later on when David made peace with Abner, remember Abner was way back a general with Saul, King Saul. And he had much influence with people, I mean, he had served faithfully for decades, you know. And here he had been with, with Absalom. And so when it came down that Absalom was dead and Abner was still living, David, instead of killing Abner, actually made peace with him. Because he had a great respect for what he did for the kingdom. But Joab, not so much. Because remember when Abner was running away? During that battle, it was Joab's brother, Asahel, that was chasing after Abner. Abner turned back and said, why do you have to die today, son? Turn around and go home, <laughs> you know, as he was running. But this Asahel, because he was known for his, his quick running, like he could run like a deer. He was going to catch him. But that didn't matter because Abner was a man of war. So he warned him, said, Asahel, just go away. <laughs> Why do you have to die today? Because he knew he was going to kill him. And sure enough, he kept on pursuing. So he took his, sword, his spear under the fifth rib as he came behind him and killed Asahel as he was chasing him. Now that was a righteous thing within battle to do. And he gave him a warning, you know, but it was Joab's brother, you know. So Joab, he didn't like the fact that David made a pact with Abner and made peace with him. So right after he did that, Joab went and made another meeting with Abner, deceitfully, and went up to him very close and took his sword or whatever, I forget what it was, a dagger, and under what? The fifth rib. Bam. Revenge. Against the king's orders again. Absalom, Abner, and now... There was another one by the name of Amasa. Amasa was another general that worked with, with, with um, Absalom. But even then, when David took the kingdom back from Absalom, he actually made Amasa a general. And Amasa was going out to secure an army for him. And he didn't come back in the allotted time of three days. David was waiting for him. So David sent uh, Benaiah as a general to go deal with this problem. And Joab went with him. No position. He, wasn't, he was, didn't have a position. He was already brought down from that position. But as they were on their way, who did they see? Amasa. And he brought the army. And he's ready to fight alongside the, you know, the army of David. So they were on the same side. So what does Joab do? <laughs> Goes up to him like he's your friend. Oh, how's it going? 
and got up real close, grabbed him by the beard, took his right under the fifth rib, killed him too. So when Joab, after turning to Adonijah, you know, there's all of these situations behind him. Now he goes and runs to the horns of the altar. Now he wants to get things right. After he's had time and time and time and time again to do the right thing. And every single time he disobeyed his king. Solomon just said, fall upon him. You understand that? You know, many times, you know, there's an opportunity for us to grab a hold on the altar. You can get right back on track again. The church folks will trust you. They will love you. Can I tell you something? You keep tempting God. <laughs> you keep playing with the things of God. The time will come where even though you grab on the horns of the altar, the people are going to say, I don't trust you. I can't. And you don't want to be in that situation. Amen? Now, you're not going to get a dagger under the ribs. <laughs> you know? But you know what? You're going to be cut off from serving the Lord the way that you could. Because you just do not learn. And playing with the power of forgiveness. You know, you don't play with the power of forgiveness. You make sure when you grab a hold of that horn and you ask for forgiveness, that in your heart you are truly repenting of the thing that you're going to the Lord about. Not just to get out of trouble, not just so people will like you, not because you've just been found out, amen, but because you want to be right with the Lord. That's what we do when we grab hold of that forgiveness on the brazen altar. Amen. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to give you an opportunity just to act upon the message you've heard today. I'm going to ask Aubrey to come and she's going to play for you. And I want you to ask the Lord what it is that you need to do based on what you've heard today. There's some sin. Is that brazen altar staring you in the face today? Are you wanting to get into that tabernacle? Are you wanting to serve? Are you wanting to be wholeheartedly a servant of the Lord? Well, you first got to face the brazen altar. Now, if you're lost, that means you need to get saved. You need to trust Christ. If you're saved, I know the brazen altar isn't necessarily talking to the saved We'll talk about the labor next week. But you got to get clean before you can serve. Sin has to be dealt with. I just want to encourage you, if the Lord has brought anything to your mind, to take that opportunity tonight. Grab a hold of that horn. Say, Lord, I mean this. I'm not playing with you tonight. I truly see the value of what you did in dying for my sins. And I'm not going to make a mockery of that power of forgiveness in my life. I truly repent. I'm not doing this no more. I'm not saying those words no more. I'm not listening to that music anymore. I'm gonna stop seeing those people that I know I'm not supposed to be with. You really wanna serve God, you gotta mean business. <laughs>